BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We all know someone with hearing loss, maybe even struggle with it ourselves. But unfortunately, hearing aids cost thousands, which most people just can't afford. Now there's an alternative. A company called Audion Hearing just released new over-the-counter hearing aids for only $189, and they sound amazing. Highly recommended for anyone with hearing loss. Check out audionhearing.com for their 45-day risk-free trial. That's A-U-D-I-E-N hearing.com, and you can use code Keith for $25 off. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Foreshadowing. Indictment. Foreshadowing. Quote, this is really bad news for Biden, Trump wrote last night, though not really, no. Quote, which means I will probably be indicted again soon, unquote. Do you like that foreshadowing? Or how about this foreshadowing? Fonnie Willis sends an email to county commissioners asking them to make sure they keep themselves and their staff safe. And orange security barriers have gone up around the Fulton County Courthouse. And yesterday was the first of 10 days before August 18th when she ordered 70% of her staff to work remotely. I don't know, what could all that possibly mean? Willis gave a TV interview, quote, the work is accomplished. We've been working for two and a half years. We're ready to go, unquote. I wish the district attorney would not be so bloody evasive. The judge, the same judge, Robert McBurney, like they only have the one in all of Georgia. McBurney tossed the last Trump attempt to toss the evidence yesterday and to disqualify the D.A. yesterday. And the untossed D.A. also says her schedule is her schedule. Two grand juries, neither meets on Wednesday. And in the same interview, quote, I don't know what Jack Smith is doing, and Jack Smith doesn't know what I'm doing. In all honesty, if Jack Smith was standing next to me, I'm not sure I would know who he was. My guess is he probably can't pronounce my name correctly, unquote. We can skip for a moment the reality that it is essential that the two of them do know what the other is doing if only after they announce what they are doing, because simultaneous trials not only have their own perils and pitfalls, but twin trials carry the danger that Georgia might assert one fact or one date or one timeline and be contradicted by what the Department of Justice is asserting, which could be fatal for both cases. We now go back to the DOJ, and there is still that January 6th target letter from Jack Smith hanging like the sword of Damocles over Trump's head, and the fact that if Smith sticks to a timeline that matches the documents case, he is indicting today, or Thursday at the latest. And the fact that his Trump January 6th grand jury was expected to convene today, and while Trump's latest self-pitying post 
which would be number 3,447,237. Collect the whole series. This latest post is not necessarily time-sensitive. It sure is funny if he already knew from his attorneys that the indictments are coming tomorrow or Thursday, and instead of just revealing it like he did last time, he's milking it this way in order to further feed the fascist storyline that the entire prosecution of Trump is being made up as they go along and being made up in just a matter of hours for one reason only, namely, as Trump also posted last night, in order to kill the news cycle, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. I mean, what does Trump think his supporters are? Idiots? Yes, he thinks they're idiots. And that's largely because they're idiots. You doubtless saw the interior numbers on the latest New York Times GOP poll which were far more important than the exterior ones about how much he's leading DeSantis by because the interior numbers shows 91% of Republicans who rely on Fox do not think Trump committed any serious crimes. 91%. And 85% say Republicans must stand behind Trump regardless. And 83% say Trump was merely exercising his right to contest his 2020 loss. And it's just too bad. Nobody was ever out there 20, 25 years ago saying Fox News and Rupert Murdoch would end democracy and kill us all. And the uninfected portions of American media and the public had to do everything we could to kill Fox News first. Oh, yeah, right. I did all that and got dismissed as the O'Reilly of the left. And I was only doing it for ratings. And my tendency to say I told you so only in many, many, many more words is perhaps my least attractive personality trait, especially when up to half the nation has literally succumbed to this mass hysteria in which no fact or reality can interrupt their loyalty to an authoritarian anti-democracy movement. And they believe that those of us who will not simply get out of their imposition of their own hallucination, we must somehow be removed from the equation. And this is unfolding on the eve of the election that will decide who is president during what is probably mankind's last window to regain the reins of the uncontrolled climate catastrophe. And the fascists literally have a thoroughly vetted and organized plan to roll back all all environmental controls and actually burn more fossil fuels as part of their project 2025. So under the circumstances, I'll try to keep the I told you so's to a minimum. Also, I will try not to either try to solve nor to utterly succumb to the climate emergency during a podcast and instead heed Marcus Aurelius and his wise words and concentrate on doing that which is in front of us. And that would be right now this guy D. Oliveira and the postponement of his actual indictment yesterday because he doesn't have a Florida lawyer just like the last guy. And another week's delay to the Trump documents trial schedule, Eileen. D. Oliveira does have a Trump pack attorney named John Irving. And thus, Carlos, the boss, wants the server deleted. De Oliveira lives in, as my childhood friend Will Bunch of the Philly Inquirer noted, he lives in the world according to Trump. This latest of Trump's countless victims, you effed up, you trusted us, might scare the hell out of Trump because if he flips the way the IT manager, Yusil Tavares, flipped, Trump can't beat the obstruction of justice rap. Cannot. But legal minds think the fact that he's already been indicted makes him a less likely flippy, because how does that look when he testifies for the prosecution and the defense says, aren't you simply saying what the special counsel told you to say because he indicted you? Then he dropped the charges. So you're not going to jail. There was one other minor news blip last night. CNN reported that a new court filing from Jack Smith's office confirms that it has obtained new security video that pertains to the effort to destroy evidence. And that is all it reveals. We don't know what it is, just that they got it after the last set of indictments. Could be video of De Oliveira and Walt Nauta carrying 
Bankers' boxes on their backs could be video of the Ivana burial. We don't know. Of much more interest, the federal election campaign filings were due yesterday, and the ethics outfit crew analyzed the one submitted by the Trump leadership PAC, which is sarcastically named Save America. It finds the PAC made three payments to political allies, which is what a leadership PAC of any stripe is supposed to do. Three. It made just a few more payments to Trump's lawyers, 169 of them. The money figure is unclear. Could be 20 million, could be 40 million. As originally reported, the fact that Save America is now save Trump's ass with lawyers, that is not unclear. Three payments to political allies, 169 of them to Trump's lawyers. When news broke that Trump's campaign is actually short enough on cash that that PAC asked for $60 million back from another pro-Trump PAC, I half joked here. That if we can't put Trump in jail before the 2024 election, maybe Jack Smith and Fonnie Willis and Alvin Bragg can bill him into the ground. Those lawyer hours can mount up quickly. Even if other people are paying for 20 million, 40 million, 875, 11 billion, it does hurt you because it means that those same other people are not paying that amount of money into your campaign. What if Trump or his campaign or both really, really, really had money troubles? This was posited seriously on Twitter yesterday. And as I say that, I am thinking you have become everything you hate. You are this close to saying that you read something on Facebook from Trump's cousin's nephew's next door neighbor's lion tamer. But... There is no mistaking that as devoted as Trump has been to never letting a dollar go unspent as long as it is your dollar, the legal bills are mounting exponentially now, and having your PAC ask for your money back from the other PACs cannot be an ordinary day at the campaign. God knows Trump has gone bankrupt before, and his life has been structured exactly to project wealth whether or not he actually has any, and everybody I actually have known in 40 years of knowing Trump, who knows him better, has always insisted that he guarded the tax returns so jealously because they would prove he was nowhere close to being a billionaire and perhaps only barely into nine figures. This, on Twitter, was the thesis that what Trump is is cash poor that he could be telling the truth about his net worth without revealing that, as the writer put it, his businesses are worth a lot of money, but they don't make a lot of money. Some don't make any money at all. And that is 100% provably true. The writer was a man named Brian Jacobson, a self-announced veteran of 25 years in the tech sector and a cloud expert and also a Second Amendment advocate, so... I ain't just echoing an opinion from our side of the cognitive gap here. It is this Jacobson's contention that, quote, truth social is killing Donald Trump's finances and may sink his presidential bid. I'm not sure about the second part of that, but the first part may really be true. The idea he posits was to launch that social media site, grab all the Twitter users angry at Jack Dorsey's successors, and then take it public and let stockholders fund it via the merger with the Digital World Acquisition Company, the merger that just fell through, the merger which government agencies are now querying. Instead, Elon Musk bought Twitter, turned it into what it has become, the playpen of the clods, Truth Social got half the users it expected or less. The merger collapsed. And instead of getting a check for up to half a billion dollars, Trump winds up still owning 90% of Truth Social himself and paying all of its operating expenses. And what are they? 50 million? 30 million? Who knows how much? It is Mr. Jacobson's conclusion that this means Trump suddenly has a little less than the 500 million Trump-owned dollars with which to self-finance his campaign or his legal defense or Dio Oliveira's legal defense or all of the above. 
No cash flow, just bills, bills, bills from lawyers about Jack Smith and lawyers about Fonnie Willis and lawyers about Alvin Bragg and lawyers about Truth Social and this merger that went belly up. Jacobson then jumps to the rather startling conclusion, which is where I seem to be getting off the train here, that Trump will either have to get a huge amount of money from this legal defense fund he is just starting, or he will be faced with folding Truth Social or bowing out of the presidential race. And I think that's farcical. Trump is not smart enough to do either. And he's congenitally incapable of admitting defeat either in social media business or in a presidential candidacy that, oh, by the way, is literally necessary to keep his own ass out of jail. But what is absolutely logical and legit is that the truth social gambit may seriously hamstring Trump's ability to keep money flowing into his legal defenses and into his campaign simultaneously. And then my guess would be, no, he's not going to drop out. He would simply try to campaign with less money than this extraordinary attempt to extricate himself from jail and put all the rest of us in it in his place will need. Plus, ultimately, even if the theory is crap, the bottom line is Jacobson's theory is absolutely delightful and it's worth wallowing in for a moment because yeah this is true and i hadn't thought about this before donald trump's social media ambitions and his personal finances and to some degree fatal or trivial have been seriously damaged by elon musk let them fight Also of interest here, did I mention this is the anniversary of the podcast? A year ago today, and I said it would never last. We will do minimal celebrations. Meantime, if you are a Republican member of Congress and something messy involving you unfolds at a public event and your office then finds it unavoidably necessary several days later to issue a statement that refers to the police getting involved. And in that statement, your office also finds it unavoidably necessary to insist that the congressman, quote, was not drinking. Guess what? Literally or metaphorically, you, sir, have a drinking problem. That's next. This is Countdown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We all know someone with hearing loss, maybe even struggle with it ourselves. But unfortunately, hearing aids cost thousands, which most people just can't afford. Now there's an alternative. A company called Audion Hearing just released new over-the-counter hearing aids for only $189, and they sound amazing. Highly recommended for anyone with hearing loss. Check out audionhearing.com for their 45-day risk-free trial. That's A-U-D-I-E-N hearing.com, and you can use code Keith for $25 off. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from The Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. 
Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline White Deer, Texas. His office now admits that Congressman Ronnie Jackson, the disgraced former White House physician and withdrawn Trump candidate to run the VA, was, quote, briefly detained by law enforcement at a rodeo outside Amarillo, Texas, Saturday night. The office insists Jackson had been summoned to help a 15-year-old girl having some sort of medical emergency, and somehow it was so noisy that the cops grabbed him. Then comes this remarkable statement. Jackson was sitting, the office says, quote, in the stands during the entire rodeo in full view of the assembled crowd and was not drinking, unquote. All you need to know about Ronnie Jackson is contained in the reality that his office needed to put out a statement saying he was not drinking as the police detained him as he put his hands on a 15-year-old girl at a rodeo. Also, if Ronnie Jackson has not been drinking, watch out. The Texas economy is about to collapse. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Dateline San Francisco, the giant glowing X sign has been taken off the roof of Twitter headquarters. Looks like it was an inside job rather than the city stepping in. If only Musk himself could be removed so easily. Dateline Colorado Springs Space Command will remain in Colorado. The Biden administration overturning a January 2021 Trump decision to move it to Alabama. The good news is this really pisses off Senator Tommy Tuberville. The bad news is this lets Lauren Boebert claim she made it happen. And Dateline Washington, this will stun you. After the FEC filings yesterday, it turns out Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential super PAC raised $9,800,000 through the end of June, $5 million of which, more than 50%, was from one donor, Timothy Mellon. 81-year-old heir to the banking fortune and longtime Trump donor. So RFK Jr. is running as a Democrat, financed by a Republican, when in fact he is actually an asshole. Still ahead on the first anniversary edition of Countdown, we will go back to episode one. Because you can't do that yourself. It's not like episode one is still online anywhere. Oh, right, it is. What the hell? First, time for the daily roundup of miscreants, morons, and the Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Musk again. He is threatening the Bill O'Reilly record, which has stood since 2005. Musk is a free speech absolutist, as you know, and what that means is... He's a free hate speech absolutist. Musk is now threatening to sue the Center for Countering Digital Hate, the nonprofit that tracks hate speech online for, quote, a series of troubling and baseless claims that appear calculated to harm Twitter generally and its digital advertising business specifically, unquote. First of all, please, it's X. It's not called Twitter. You'd think Musk would know that. Secondly, Musk has spent the entirety of his time owning that site, trying to find out who is destroying its reputation. We need to start a GoFundMe to buy Elon a mirror. I think he'll show up in a mirror. The runner-up, Ron DeSantis. Remember him? Mr. Wokey Finoki Swamp? Remember his fanboy magazine editor and Tucker Carlson darling Pedro Gonzalez? And then Breitbart produced a series of anti-Semitic text messages by Pedro Gonzalez. 
and other DeSantis supporters, including his unofficial magazine, The Florida Standard, rallied to support Gonzalez. Turned out there were even more Gonzalez anti-Semitic text messages published by the right-wing Washington Free Beacon, in which Gonzalez laments that Nancy Pelosi, quote, can't be criticized because she is Jewish. Yeah, this is uh, one of those not-that-smart anti-Semites. Waiting for reaction from DeSantis, if he can find his mouth with both hands. But our winner, Congressman Derek Van Orden of Wisconsin. You heard about this, right? Last week, a group of 16- and 17-year-old Senate pages on their last night in the Capitol took photos of the place, and some apparently got down on the floor to grab images of the magnificent ceiling with their iPhones, which is when Van Orden, in whose office the same night passersby photographed a significant amount of alcohol in bottles, Van Orden approached the group and started swearing at the 16 and 17-year-old kids. What the F are you all doing? Get the F out of here. You are defiling the space, you pieces of S. Who the F are you? They told him, I don't give an F who you are, get out. Condemned by Democratic leaders and Republican leaders and Senate leaders and House leaders, this Van Orden schmuck doubled down. He not only insisted the pages were treating the Capitol, quote, like a frat house common room, he told a Milwaukee paper that they were, quote, terribly disrespectful to lay on the grave of a soldier that died fighting for freedom. Yeah, uh, congressman, and I use the term loosely even in this day and age, there are no graves in the U.S. Capitol. You're thinking of the tomb of the unknown soldier, Van Orden, or you're thinking of Jack Daniels, or they taught it at Excelsior College where you got your degree online. But this, of course, gets worse. Turns out that while Van Orden was running for that House seat, he went into a Wisconsin library and he went nuts over a display of books on LGBTQ topics during Pride Month. He started shoving the books and he lit into what he assumed, I guess, was a library staffer, but was, guess what, a 17-year-old girl, another teenager who was a library page. Another page! So this Van Orden is not only a historical ignoramus who thinks somebody is buried under the floor of the Capitol, but he's a 53-year-old man who has a habit of picking on teenage girls. And there's an even bigger issue. Van Orden continues to believe he is in the right here because the pages were quote-unquote defiling the Capitol. Van Orden was in Washington on January 6th, attended the Trump rally, and then went to the Capitol, and he thinks somebody else defiled it? Derek, the only thing buried at the Capitol is your empties, Van Orden. Today's worst person in the world! BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We all know someone with hearing loss, maybe even struggle with it ourselves. But unfortunately, hearing aids cost thousands, which most people just can't afford. Now there's an alternative. A company called Audion Hearing just released new over-the-counter hearing aids for only $189, and they sound amazing. Highly recommended for anyone with hearing loss. Check out audionhearing.com for their 45-day risk-free trial. That's A-U-D-I-E-N hearing.com, and you can use code Keith for $25 off. Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. 
And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Did I mention it was the anniversary of the podcast? I can't remember. Have I brought that up at all? I've always thought anniversaries were overdone things, but they do provide excuses for assessment and calculation and milestones. And the month we started, I think we were shy of 600,000 downloads, which was still a pretty good start, but not really near the threshold for success in one of these podcasts, which is a million a month. Well, we hit that mark in January. Now with the addition of the YouTube option, which is itself getting between 125,000 and 150,000 plays a week. I mean, you guys listening to all or most of the show, even though the video on YouTube is just a cartoon of me, I know, cartoon of me, that phrase sometimes seems a little redundant. That is pretty remarkable, all things considered. Well, anyway, between YouTube and all the podcast options for the month just passed, we exceeded 2 million downloads and plays in one month, and there were only 18 new shows. I actually took four days off for a change. Okay, enough boasting for the moment. One of the many odd things about podcasts, maybe the oddest, is the reality that people do best of podcasts even though all the originals are, as I alluded to a segment ago, still online somewhere. I did a few of these early on, and I may still do some more, but at least when I do them, I try to give you a little added value. I stitch together thematically three segments, so you get three pieces about Trump as national security risk or Biden confronting MAGA or whatever, the Supreme Court, and there is some value in being able to hear shorter versions of the commentaries as they happened in real time and trace a story as it develops. Well, rather than do that for this anniversary, I thought the simplest thing was to take the first episode from a year ago when the same day audience was like 40% of what it is now, and at least there's a chance people had not heard this before, and replay the opening commentary, which was a takeoff on the mad as hell speech from Network, and the closing commentary, which explained where the hell I had been for the preceding two years. As always, if you hit stop now, I'm not going to take it personally it's those bastards who hit stop earlier, they're the ones who frost my beer stein. Where were you and what were you doing on August 1st, 2022, when you first heard this? This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a recession. Everybody goes to work, but they're still scared of losing their job. The corporations make sure the dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are making record profits. Teachers are told to keep a gun under the desk. Punks are running wild in Congress, and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know... The air is unfit to breathe, and our planet will be unfit for life. And we sit watching our TVs while some Fox newscaster tells us that today Trump is the real victim and minorities are the real problem, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We all know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We have the Senate and the House, but slowly the democracy we're living in is getting smaller. And all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my president and my RBG shrine and my January 6th hearings, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I want you to protest. I want you to strike. I want you to write to your congressman because you don't need me to tell you what to write. You know what to do about the recession and the inflation and the Russians and the Nazis in the street. All I know is first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So 
I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up and out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take Trump anymore. I want you to get up right now, get up, go to your windows, open them and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take Trump anymore. Things have got to change, but first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take Trump anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the recession and the inflation and the oil cartels. But first, get up out of your chairs, open your windows, stick your head out and yell and say it, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take Trump anymore. As hell. I'm not gonna take Trump anymore. I am mad as hell and I'm not gonna take Trump anymore. I'm mad as hell. Not gonna take Trump anymore. Sorry. Couldn't resist. And for the first time in my life, even through the brutal years of Reagan and even through the psychotic years of Bush, that famous Howard Beale speech from the 1976 movie network seems to fit this moment. With some revisions, of course. The Beale character, as portrayed by Peter Finch, and especially that speech, and especially that catchphrase, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore, spoke to, long before it became a cliche, this weird overlap between somebody who is so enraged that he is angry mad as hell and somebody who may be so insane that he is crazy mad as hell. But there's also a third subtext to it, which only occasionally gets mentioned and only occasionally gets appreciated. And it is why Beale and mad as hell mean something today. It's that line towards the start. We all know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy. In short, it's like Howard Beale representing all of us is going crazy because nobody else is when they should be. If in school. You had read that 100 years ago or 150 years ago or whenever a president of the United States fraudulently denied he lost the election and tried to overturn it in the courts and in the Congress. And it didn't work because it was one big lie. So he invited gangs of thugs and racists and gun suckers and militias to come to the Capitol during the most boasted about part of American democracy, the peaceful transfer of power. And having invited them, he then incited them to try to overthrow the government by violence, you would have expected to then have read about the police and the military and the laws that stopped him, and the arrests and the indictments and the lifetimes in prison and the vengeance that followed. Hell, what precipitated the Civil War if not 11 states trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power because they didn't like who got elected? We are supposed to do something about this. When a large minority of Americans stood up and said, only whites are real people. And when they said, we will use the police to lynch black people. And when they said, guns settle everything. And when they said, women are here only to breed. And when they said, we own the Supreme Court now. And when they said, we will not teach history because we don't want children to know there's a more righteous way. And when they said, this is our world and you, the majority, your votes do not count here. Your cities do not count here. Your lives do not count here. Your president does not count here. When all that happened within 39 days, our anger and our vengeance, democracy's anger and vengeance began. It was 1861. But first, you've got to get mad. Today, they have Trump and Schedule F and a plan to impeach Biden for whatever. And they've already turned the Supreme Court into the theocratic Republican Supreme Religious Court. And they've overturned abortion. And next will be marriage equality. And they intend to investigate the January 6th committee members and pardon everybody who actually attacked the Capitol, even though you and I grew up presuming, you know, if I attack the Capitol during the peaceful transfer of power, I'm going to guess they'll give me about five seconds to stop before they start shooting at me and they want to put Fauci in prison, and they're passing laws prosecuting doctors and prosecuting women who leave a state to go to another state for an abortion. In other words, they want to prosecute women who leave a slave state to go to a free state and bring them back to the slave state. 
and they have a Fox News and another worse Fox News and another worser even than that Fox News. And what do we have? We have once a week somebody who says we must find a compromise with them. We must be bipartisan. We must be Democrats and liberals who act like Republicans and fascists and Nazis. We have Joe Manchin. And for 18 months, Joe Manchin has obstructed all the good Joe Biden has tried to do and prevented all the emergency measures we must have to keep the last words by the last human surviving the climate catastrophe on this planet from being as chairman of Exxon Mobil, <coughs> I want to report record profits for the year uh, 2052. And when the bribe for Joe Manchin, the senator from Fossil Fuel Gulch, West Virginia, is finally sufficient to his liking, and he finally agrees with Chuck Schumer on the $740 billion climate and deficit reduction bill, what does he get? He gets to go on all five network Sunday political television nitwit shows. The proverbial full Ginsburg. Glory, glory, hallelujah, it's Joe Manchin, our lawgiver, the true Democrat. And yet, Kirsten Cinema could still kill the thing today, and Joe Manchin would then still look reasonable by contrast tomorrow. He'd still be the hero who achieved nothing. And if all that cinema stuff bothers you, I used to go out with her. We all know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy. Even the fascists who hate or fear Trump have something closer to a plan than we do. The This Town author Mark Leibovich quoted a former Republican congressman as saying, quote, look, we have no plan for this except sitting around hoping he dies, unquote, which actually sounds like more of a plan than our plan. Our plan? Make sure Democrats help the craziest Trump supporters and election deniers, and it's not IQAnon, it's just QAnon nutbags, get nominated because we're confident we can beat them, right? 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 This weekend, it will be 19 months since the coup. They have plans for more coups. A coup in Washington, a coup in every state, a coup in every county. Looks like they compromised the Secret Service, and it's still compromised. Looks like they compromised the Inspector General at Homeland Security. They've compromised half the cops in this country, a little less, a little more. They've compromised, as my heroes Bob Elliott Ray Goulding once joked, everything except the Visiting Nurse Association. They have built a cult around denying the 2020 election. And if you haven't figured out what's behind that nonsense, by the way, seemingly quixotic and academic at the same time, here's the little secret. The idea about the 2020 stuff still being talked about is if El Duche gets elected in 2024 and goes back to the White House, he will somehow make somebody like, I don't know, the Supreme Court confirm that, yes, he actually won in 2020, but was denied that rightful term in the White House, so he will be given a third term in 2028, or at least allowed to run for it. In short, if 2020 was stolen from him, he's owed another term, right? That's in the Constitution, isn't it? Gee, maybe we could just, you know, skip the 2028 election outright. The fascists have all this in the works, and what do we have? We have Chuck Todd, three weeks ago, asking a Republican governor, quote, What's best for the country? Do you think the country can handle prosecuting a former president? And we have Lester Holt, one week ago, telling the Attorney General of the United States, quote, Indictment of a former president and perhaps a candidate for president would arguably tear the country apart. Is that your concern? They have Fox News. We have Fox News. Only we call it NBC. 
I will do this podcast every weekday morning. No holiday Mondays. Sorry, I'm getting old. It will be as best as I can do it, the podcast version of what the old TV show was. I will explain to you later in this first episode what exactly happened to the old TV show. And here's a tease. It's none of the things you've heard. And I'll have comments on the news and comments on the sports. Did you know I used to do sports? And the worst persons in the world are back. And why Trump gets a tax break for burying his wife in the golf course. But first, I want to button up this topic about getting mad as hell with two quotes and one question. Quote number one. It's General William Tecumseh Sherman, and it's meant metaphorically, so don't think I'm talking about bloodshed, because you can't do political bloodshed in this country unless you're a Republican. This was Sherman the last time Americans tried to overthrow American democracy. Quote, war is the remedy our enemies have chosen. Other simple remedies were within their choice. You know it, and they know it, but they wanted war. And I say, let us give them all they want, not a word of argument, not a sign of let up, no cave in, till we are whipped or they are. End Sherman quote. First, you've got to get mad. What greater act of war against the United States by someone owing allegiance to the United States within the United States could there ever be than to send armed militias into the United States Capitol, than to encourage them to attack and kill members of Congress, members of the Senate, even the vice president? What greater act of war against the United States could there be than to try to prevent by violent revolution the peaceful transfer of power in the United States? I have no complaints about the January 6th committee. I do not buy the argument that it's the Liz Cheney show, and so what if it were? Chairman Thompson and the other Democrats have been terrific. If, as I speculated months ago, they are programming to the proverbial audience of one, and it is named Merrick Garland, dandy. But I don't see exactly how they plan to end this. So what if, first, they realized You've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take Trump anymore. What if they ended it with another quote? What if the January 6th committee ends its final hearing by simply quoting just the start of Title 18 USC Chapter 115, Section 2381? Quote, Whoever, owing allegiance to the United States, levies war against them or adheres to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort within the United States or elsewhere, is guilty of treason and shall suffer death. So, for our number one story on the countdown, my favorite topic, me. Each podcast will conclude with me telling you a story from my career or life, usually hanging off the day's news, or at least an anniversary of some kind, the people I've known, the places I've worked, the innumerable morons I have encountered, some of the women I've dated, if it's relevant, like Laura. Don't judge me. It all began at a small 5,000-watt radio station in Fresno, California. On Fridays, instead, we will read from the great works of the great James Thurber, just like we used to do on the TV show. And when I say we, of course, I mean I. If you're not interested, you just want the day's news, eh, cool, turn it off. I will not be offended. But I think these stories will explain, entertain, and often enrage you. Lord knows they will enrage me. So as I launch this frail bark, where better to start than here? If you were a viewer of the old TV show, let me explain finally how that became this. My original 1997 MSNBC News Hours, The Big Show and The White House in Crisis were the first programs that made MSNBC any money. I mean, seriously, the network otherwise hemorrhaged cash from its launch in 1996 until about 2005. That's when the show I started upon my return in 2003, Countdown, a low-rated nightly news digest that was a pretty good show, 
started getting really political and suspicious of Bush and Iraq and especially the Republicans' political manipulation of the threat of terrorism, and the viewers arrived in droves. By the next year, the ad salesmen, and contrary to all logic, they are the ones from whom you get the truth in a news company, they were sending me bottles of champagne and revealing that Countdown was now earning a $50 million annual profit, then $75 million, then $100 million. They liked me. They really, really liked me. But management at NBC, not so much. Right after MSNBC started to make money, it started making enemies. The Republicans came right to our door and threw it. The psychos at Fox News, like O'Reilly and Hannity and Ailes, remember we called them fixed news or Fox noise, they started calling the executives at NBC and its parent company, GE, demanding that I stop criticizing them. Softer than church music, these fascists could not take criticism. When Tim Russert was still alive and defending me internally and externally, watching every night and sending me tips and warnings and ideas, and capable of playing the Republicans inside NBC and outside NBC like fiddles, everything was fine. Then came that horrible day, June 13th, 2008. Tim died. And suddenly NBC News was in the hands of a lot of cowards and bullies like Tom Brokaw and Joe Scarborough and Jeff Zucker and names you would not know like Jeff Immelt and Steve Kappas and Phil Griffin and Chris Licht. And I really wish you didn't need to know Chris Licht's name, but he was Scarborough's henchman. And now he's the new president of CNN. And you don't know how bad that news is for the future of this country. Anyway. I will go into depth on all this background in future episodes, how men like these spent a year keeping Rachel Maddow off the air, telling me I couldn't even put her on as my guest host because nobody would watch a woman or a lesbian or another liberal. That's what they said. Then they lied to me and told me they had hired her so that one night Larry King talked her into going on his show on CNN for $250, and I wound up hiring her out of my own pocket to keep MSNBC from losing her. Literally, the cash in my wallet, 437 bucks. Anyway, by August of 2008, the Republicans were threatening Brokaw that if he did not get me fired from MSNBC's coverage of the presidential election, John McCain would not show up for the debate that Brokaw had inherited from the late Tim Russert. So Brokaw went in and threatened, and that's a nice euphemism, NBC management on behalf of the GOP just to get to host one more debate. I mean, he boasted about it in the New York Times. Then within a year, it was Fox blackmailing the executives at GE, actually getting the chairman of GE, Jeff Immelt, to threaten to take MSNBC off the air, just shut it down. If Fox continued to criticize him, Immelt, because his mommy was a Bill O'Reilly fan and Bill O kept claiming her little boy Jeff was producing weapons used to kill Americans in Iraq. I mean, honestly, these were adults behaving like this. Well, as I tell everybody in the business, there are no adults. It got worse and worse. Zucker and Roger Ailes meeting inside 30 Rock, no less, to decide what I could and could not say about Fox News, negotiating what could be in our news and what could not. And in 2010, NBC started suggesting that we put Republicans on countdown, like Michael Steele and the deplorable Scarborough. Nobody ever asked me a direct question as to how, in January 2011, I left MSNBC and the highest-rated cable news show that was not on Fox. And I kept telling them, just say we don't consider Fox to be news. It isn't news. So why are we comparing our ratings to them? Was I fired? Did I quit? Was it something else? So I've never actually told the actual story because I wasn't asked a direct question about it. Well, one of the perks they threw at me when I re-signed with MSNBC rather than jumping to CNN in 2006-2007 was a slot on the Sunday night NBC football broadcast. It was a nice change. I got to work with my old ESPN partner, Dan Patrick. It wasn't life and death. I could do the catchphrases and the silly voices and say, they're not gonna get them. But right before the 2010 season, Jeff Zucker called me into his office, told me I was not focusing enough on Countdown, and I was off the football show. Now, the following portion is, of course, a pure hypothetical, which is really better designed for a college course in contract law. But if in a case like this hypothetical, the guy doing a 
let's say, hypothetical football show wasn't actually being paid to do the hypothetical football show, if doing that hypothetical football show were a perk, if it was a non-cash payment or an incentive to sign a contract rather than to go to some other hypothetical network like CN Hypothetical N, well, then when that hypothetical announcer is taken off that hypothetical football show, the people who hypothetically took him off the show have hypothetically breached his hypothetical contract. And all of a sudden, the hypothetical companies, hypothetical lawyers are asking the hypothetical announcer how much money it would hypothetically cost them to hypothetically cure a hypothetical breach. Back to the non-hypothetical portion of our story. So now it's a few months later, the week before the 2010 midterms, which I would be anchoring on MSNBC. And while I would be covering the Senate and governor races right through election night, we were done reporting on the House. I did an interview on Thursday, I think, with the Congressman Raul Grijalva of Arizona, and then I did a special comment on Friday about all the Tea Partiers running for Congress that year, and that was it. And that night, I was on the phone with my friend Kirsten Cinema. Yep, that Kirsten Cinema. How many Kirsten Cinemas could there be? She told me that Grijalva and another Arizona representative had gotten a lot of death threats late in the campaign, and they had spent virtually every last dollar they had on security. Kirsten asked, can you donate to these campaigns? And I said I'd never donated before, but yeah, to Grijalva and to a senator in the South, I think, and the other Arizona representative who had gotten a lot of death threats. Her name was Gabby Giffords. The next Tuesday, I anchored those midterms, didn't mention one House race or candidate, and everything was fine. And then somebody called one of the political websites to say, ooh, Olbermann donated to some Democrats. And they called NBC Public Relations. And NBC Public Relations called the president of MSNBC. And the president of MSNBC called me, and he said, this looks bad. I know it's your right to do it. It's not like we're going to suspend you or anything stupid like that. Why would we do that? This is sort of our fault, too. But it just looks bad. Can you, you know, can you say something? And I said, yeah, you're right. It does look bad. I'll apologize on the show tomorrow, even though I don't have to. I will voluntarily stop any campaign contributions as long as I'm doing this show. And he said, great. And I said, great. And I wrote the apology that night and I sent it to him and he said, great. And I said, great, because I already had part of tomorrow's show written. And that was it. And the next morning, without a hearing, without a phone call, without an email, without a warning, this hysterical teenager disguised as an adult named Steve Kappas, president of NBC News, he puts out a press release in which he angrily suspends me indefinitely without pay for violations of the NBC News employee rule book that says NBC News employees can't make donations to political campaigns. Now, NBC had an obvious huge problem. Within hours, there was a petition on social media demanding my reinstatement. 250,000 signatures. I was stunned. NBC tried to get Chris Hayes to fill in for me that night. He refused. Even people at Fox News went on the air and said this was absurd. And at NBC, there was a lot of shushing and worrying because... Everybody at NBC News made political donations. They just hid them by donating in their wife's name or the kid's name or to some sort of fund or whatever. I was the only one who admitted to it. But this guy, Kappas, he was pissed off and dug in and demanded I be suspended for a month or, I don't know, a hundred years without pay at least. And all this is already public and well documented. But hypothetically again, there could have been more to it. See, if you hypothetically suspend your hypothetical announcer guy again for violating the employee handbook, what happens if that hypothetical announcer is not actually an employee? What if the hypothetical employer has written the contract of the hypothetical announcer so that it specifically declares several different hypothetical times in the hypothetical contract that the hypothetical announcer is not an employee, but just say, to pick a term out of thin air, an independent contractor. What if hypothetically the employer, could be NBC, could be a bakery somewhere, what if hypothetically the employer did this in contract legalese so they did not have to pay the hypothetical announcer? health insurance or dental. 
Well then, hypothetically that phrase breach re-enters the chat. And the hypothetical company's hypothetical lawyers go to the executive who just suspended the employee who legally is not an employee, and they say hypothetically again. You now have four hypothetical choices. One, reinstate the hypothetical non-employee immediately and hope we don't get sued. Two, reinstate the hypothetical non-employee immediately, apologize, and write up a new contract, for God's sake. Three, end the show. Pay the hypothetical non-employee every dollar you owe for the remainder of the hypothetical contract and hope you don't get sued for damages anyway. Or four, hypothetically throw a lot of money in the air and negotiate a settlement and end the hypothetical show hypothetically. In the short term, what happened was, and I'm quoting from the New York Times, they told me on Friday I was suspended, I was back on the air Tuesday, they didn't even dock my pay or charge me for any days off. Making this wilder still, hours after I was suspended, Al Gore called me. Al owned a struggling TV network called Current, and he said what NBC is doing is illegal, and if you sue them, you could own the place. But I think I have a better idea that can be the start of something big. You can bring Countdown to current TV. We'll give you $50 million plus bonuses plus a piece of the network. You'll be an owner. This is me talking. In the long term, for two months, these two roller coasters went up and down, and my agents negotiated a tentative contract with current while there was a hypothetical attempt to settle the other hypothetical non-employee cluster hypothetical F. And then literally during the MSNBC countdown show on January 21st, 2011, during a commercial break, everything got finalized all at once. My agent told me it was done. I went on the air and said so. And nobody, not even the staff knew, which I am still sorry about very greatly, unavoidable, but that's the way it worked. So no, I was not fired. Countdown was not canceled. The current TV deal had already been in place for weeks. And by the way, during every step of this, I kept Maddo and her agent, who had been my agent for 27 years, fully informed. And so that very night that Countdown ended on MSNBC, Maddo was on Bill Maher's show right after it all happened. And naturally, he asked her about it and she lied and said, this is the first I'm hearing of it. And I thought, oh boy, that might be the end of that friendship. And we haven't spoken since. Anyway, the current thing turned out to be a scam, and it blew up rather quickly, and I'll tell that story in a future episode, too. On the other hand, I don't have to work for money again. But the weirdest thing started happening in September 2011, not eight months after I left MSNBC. Feelers from the new owners of NBC, Comcast. Would I consider coming back to MSNBC? Yes, I would. Then they got cold feet. Then the next year, more feelers. This time I got cold feet and I started negotiating to go back to ESPN instead, and I did. In 2014, I actually met with the new NBC News executives for two hours, and they wanted me to bring Countdown back as soon as possible and then the Brian Williams scandal broke, and these new executives all got themselves fired. And then in October 2015, I met with the new new executives, and they wanted me to come back. They made an actual offer, and it was stupid. It was predicated on my doing a show without commentaries. Like, what was the point of Countdown or me without the commentaries? And even that guy got fired in 2019, and the new chairman of the entire NBC corporation, Jeff Schell, was an old friend of mine from Fox Sports, and he wanted me to bring the show back, and we got close. And then the word came in from the guy who was negotiating for me that the chairman of NBC News, Cesar Conde, had told him the whole thing had cratered because one person at NBC had never and would never forgive me for something. And that person, said Conde, was Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow, per Cesar Conde, vetoed the last chance and ended literally a decade of talks about putting this program back on MSNBC. By the way, NBC's denial of this last set of flirtations was that, yes, for two years, NBC's CEO Jeff Schell kept scheduling meetings with me, but I should have known he didn't really mean it. 
Basically, their explanation was, I should have known the chairman of NBC was a liar. As the kids say, weird flex, but okay. And that's the short version. So last winter, that's when I began exploring a new venue for Countdown. And here we are, a daily podcast, same Keith, new platform. And I don't have to shave or wear makeup. And I hope you'll enjoy the content as much as I already enjoy the not shaving. So that's where we began a year ago today, 258 episodes ago. I thank you kindly for your patronage. Tell the others. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. Sports music is the Olderman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc., Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever, and my special thanks to Nancy. Our announcer today was my friend Larry David, and everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 937th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. I have an opening this afternoon. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bolton says the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We all know someone with hearing loss, maybe even struggle with it ourselves. But unfortunately, hearing aids cost thousands, which most people just can't afford. Now there's an alternative. A company called Audion Hearing just released new over-the-counter hearing aids for only $189, and they sound amazing. Highly recommended for anyone with hearing loss. Check out audionhearing.com for their 45-day risk-free trial. That's A-U-D-I-E-N hearing.com, and you can use code KEITH for $25 off. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. CNN.